Hello, queens and beans. Welcome to this little moment of your week we call the Wild Honey Collective. What does good food mean to you? For Nico and Rachel Sarah of Millsong Bakery, this question must be answered from the scale of the agriculture and more broadly, the culture that cultivates our food. Nico apprenticed as a baker in the community of the Ark of Lanza del Vasto, a spiritual commune in southern France dedicated to embodying the principles of Gandhian nonviolence by bringing the hands, the land, and the belly into closer communion. Milsong bakes naturally leavened breads, stoned milled on site with local grains from the Chesapeake Bay watershed. If you're someone who is trying to find principles that guide self-loving food choices, if you're interested in eating truly local foods that make you feel great, or you are just a true sourdough enthusiast, this conversation is for you. May it feed you well. Bon appetit. Awesome. Good morning, Amelia. Yeah, thanks for inviting me here today. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here. So you are the baker of Milsong Bakery. You bake delicious, wholesome sourdough bread That's in right. Harrisonburg and at the Harrisonburg Farmer's Market out of your bakery mm. as well. And I thought we could begin by having you explain to us what your sourdough is all about, what distinguishes it um, in your practice as a baker and what people should know about it okay yeah great so yeah thanks for describing it that way because that is that is just what it is it's sourdough bread um i've actually started calling it naturally leavened bread to people because um some people and some cultures really don't prefer sourness in their foods and and in fact actually sourdough bread doesn't have to be really sour it has to be acidic, but there's actually a lot of foods, you know, that are acidic, like wine is always acidic. Um, coffee is always acidic, but we don't think of those as sour. If you were to have a cup of coffee and it were sour, you'd be like, that's not good coffee. <laughs> we make naturally leavened breads and we use um, fresh milled flour. Um, and I say fresh milled, I mean, we mill it ourselves. We don't buy any flour. We buy local grains from organic farms, as local as we can get. Now, um, a good deal of our grains, I'd say probably 80%, are coming from Rockingham County. So we're thrilled. That's right where we are. So um, happy to be supporting local farmers and getting the best ingredients we can from right here. Mm -hmm. There's a lot to unpack in what you've laid out that I think our culture around food is lacking education and tradition around. The first thing is you mentioned the culture of sourdough okay. itself. And culture is the actual word mm. that we use to describe the inoculation of sourdough to ferment flour and water into naturally leavened dough. Can you describe how that works for anyone who doesn't know? Yeah, totally. Right now, there's a lot of definitions of sourdough in this country. One of the main ones is coming from San Francisco. 
And um, that's a place that has really extreme tastes. You know, um, some people from out uh, in California, some bakers I know have said, you know, the breads are so sour there that you could light a light bulb with them. Mm. And so that's sort of where our culture is coming from in sourdough. But um, you know, naturally leavened bread goes way back. I guess um, something I thought was super beautiful when I looked into it was in Northern European languages, the word for what we call sourdough is, is just that. It's sour dough, sour um, dough in, in German and in um, the Scandinavian languages and English, um, all those Northern European countries. And in the Southern European countries where the climate was much warmer and um, you had to worry more about over-fermentation, um, people were often trying to limit um, fermentation so that didn't go overboard and create a bread that was, you know, not not tasty or didn't have a good texture or didn't have a good appearance. And the the word there for the sourdough is often mother dough, oh. mother uh, masa madre in Spanish, which was almost the name we picked for the bakery, masa madre, which would be a good name. Um, and then in Italian, um, like I think it's like madre leveta or something like and uh, in French, it's levain, which just means leavening. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeast in French is levure, so it means uh, different. Basically, it's, it's a way to leaven your bread, and it doesn't necessarily yield sour bread. So um, people are really familiar these days with kombucha, and kombucha is similar to a sourdough culture, or at least the, the mother, the scoby. So SCOBY stands for a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. And a sourdough starter, a mother, a leaven, or whatever you want to call it, is basically a SCOBY. I call it a semi-SCOBY because it's not actually symbiotic. There's a little bit of competition in there, okay. but not total competition. They are, there's some cooperation, some competition, because they eat the same things. There's bacteria and yeast that eat the same things, and so there's a little competition there. But... Um, they also protect themselves from other bacterias and yeasts because there's, I don't know, I want to say trillions of them right in the air that we're breathing right now. So um, the way they control the other bacteria and yeast is by dropping the pH a little bit. And um, when they drop the pH, there's only certain bacteria and yeasts that can survive in that environment, you know, like the um, Acidophilus for yogurt is one that survives in a pH. Acido means acidic, and philus means love, lover of acid. So anyway, like that's a, that's a bacteria that can live in a, an acidic environment. And in the air we breathe, there's lots of bacteria and yeast that can survive in acidic environments, but they also have to be ones that can survive off of the carbohydrates and the proteins that are in grain. Now, um, wheat has two proteins that are considered gluten-forming proteins. And one of them is called glutenin, and one of them is called gliadin. Um, I'm getting geeky, but um, <laughs> this is the way it works, and it's just super interesting if you can, you know, bear with me. But, totally. Yeah, so... I'm picturing, like, an infographic accompanying Yeah, <laughs> I know, like, someone drawing it on the board. Uh, great artist could be, yeah, go to town with this. But... Um, yeah, so glutenin and gliadin, they, they fit together sort of like um, two sides of a zipper. You know, they, they, when they're in the presence of water, 
they attract themselves. Some people call it like Velcro. Velcro is little hooks and little loops, and they kind of work together that way. Well, one of those proteins is responsible for dough being wheat dough coming back, shrinking into itself. It's called elasticity. And one of those is responsible for dough, wheat doughs, uh, mostly being extensible so you can stretch them without them tearing. If you think about like, um, like I was just making corn masa last night, like uh, corn doughs, like to make tortillas or arepas. And if you stretch that out, it tears. So you have to be careful how you sort of form it. But wheat has the strange ability to stretch it out and not tear. And that's from um, its elasticity that comes mostly from gliadin, one of the proteins. Anyway, the whole reason I talk about that is that nowadays most bread is leavened with commercial yeast, which is one of the yeasts or one of the um, fungi that is present in some sourdough starters. It's been found. Um, it's called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the Latin name. And cerevisiae sounds like cerveza, like mm. beer. It's a beer yeast. It's been used to brew beer. Okay. And it's one yeast that turns starches. Um, well, I guess the enzymes are responsible for turning the starches into the simple um, carbs, sugars. And then the yeast turns the... Um, simple sugars into carbon dioxide and into alcohol. And both of those things are present in wheat dough and when you bake them. The thing about uh, when you bake them, um, the alcohol goes away and the carbon just leavens the bread. So that's how it works. But uh, sourdough fermentation is different because um, sourdough also breaks down the proteins. And this is key right now. Because um, proteins, again, are gluten-forming proteins are the ones we're concerned with. And um, if you take a sourdough bread, dough, and you, like, let's say it's set to ferment for five hours, and you let it go ten, and you come and you check it, and you stretch it out, it'll tear, just like that masa dough I was talking about, just like that corn dough that cannot extend because it's broken, the gluten's mm broken up and gone. If you take a yeast dough and you put enough yeast in it that it's going to ferment for five hours and you come back in 10 and you stretch it out, it's going to be really gassy, but it's still going to stretch as far as you want it to stretch because the gluten has not been affected, not been broken down, not been pre-digested at all. You get all of that. Your, your gut has to break all that gluten down. Okay, and this is really key for people who have gluten allergies, right? Because my, actually, my housemate, Seth, is one of the people who exposed me at first to your bakery. And for, for Seth, he has sensitivities to gluten, but your bread, he can eat. And when we talk about the... Coming back to the culture okay, of, yeah. of <laughs> this sourdough, one of the reasons I think that language is really powerful is because humans have such a long relationship with mm. these world of living bacteria that you're talking about in mm. our dough. And sorry, not just bacteria, but enzymes and proteins yep. and yeast and yep. <laughs> all of these things. Um, the semi-scoby. So 
humans have such a long history with with these living um, ecologies, for yes. lack of a better word, in our yes. dough that we actually refer to them as culture mm. or we refer to them as mother, as mm. you said, in the south of Europe. And so when we talk about where the modern food culture has evolved to so that our bread is actually changed so much yeah. that it's indigestible to half the population or something, something like that. Like that then we're really talking about such a dramatic change in our relationship to this staple food mm -hmm. that has been so important to our bodies and our landscapes mm -hmm. and our food traditions. Yeah. So that's really Amen. cool that you're bringing that back and mm -hmm. that you're also so well-versed, of course, as like a professional baker in the science of what these differences are and how you can trace them back to our choices. Yeah, yeah. And actually, yeah, it's cool that you're bringing up culture and we're going to look at that because it's just, that is something that caused me to be really interested in this. You know, okay, if I'm someone who wants to eat healthy food, if I'm someone who cares about digestion or cares about nutrition or cares about avoiding uh, glyphosate or whatever, um, well, where can I find that? You know, one of the first reasons that I started baking bread um, was that I couldn't find the bread that I was understanding based on my research was the kind of bread that was better to be eating. Um, I was not able to find it. Um, but yeah, and like people like Seth who um, can't eat other kinds of breads but find naturally leavened um, breads made with ancient grains like spelt, you know, organic spelt. Yeah, to be really helpful. Um, there's not, you know, he's not the only one, I guess. There's other people that um, come by my breads at the farmer's market that say the same thing. And um, basically, it's no surprise that this has happened. All of the changes that have happened in farming, milling, and baking, they've all been toward the same end, which is saving time and making the results more predictable. So if you take my flour, which is made from, you know, Philip Whitmer's farm and Evan Showalter's farm, um, and I made it fresh with my stone mill, and then you take my sourdough starter and try to make bread, there's no telling how it's going to turn out if it's your first or second time trying it. But if it's your first or second time following a recipe and you've got a national mill providing your flour and you've got commercial yeast, you can probably get pretty good bread. So all of these changes from farming, milling, and baking. So farmers have been given all kinds of sprays and um, you know glyphosate, which is an herbicide, which somehow kills all the plants except for the wheat that you grew. Um, so you've got uh, the farmers, the millers, with new technology um, for milling, which is not stone milling anymore. Now the dominant way of making flour is called a roller mill, and it works very differently, and it creates a flour that's ultimately not as nutritious, but it's much more efficient. You can make way more flour in one day with uh, one setup of, of a roller mill than you can with one setup of a, of a stone mill. So, uh, and then the baker 
Um, yeah, just all kinds of different technologies in a bakery nowadays, in, including uh, nationally milled flours, which are, there's some really great mills making really great flours, and I aspire to learn as much as those people know. I'm not saying that they're, you know, bad guys out there, but uh, it, it takes a lot of the guesswork out. So, so all that is to say, it's not a surprise that we've gotten to this point where, you know, we're making a bread that a lot of people can't even eat. And they think that they can't eat bread. There's something that they can't eat about bread. And maybe there is, but there's a lot of people, in my experience, who just haven't found a bread that's fermented or pre-digested or makes it easy on their gut. Yeah. I wonder if people have some of the context around glyphosate, which is a known carcinogen that is sprayed on all of our non-organic food and is also, you know, this is a podcast inspired by bees mm. and like it's killing the bee colonies in mass and those are our pollinators that's our food chain as well and also like when some of the differences that you're speaking to with the mill yeah um what i've been told is that the speed at which they grind the wheat berries mm. into flour mm. um <laughs> Even this for me a year ago before the pandemic would have been like, what is she talking about? <laughs> then everybody started making sourdough, right? <laughs> but um, I've been told that it grinds the wheat berries so quickly that it actually burns off some of the like parts of the hull or parts of the interior that yep. are nutritious. Yes. Could you explain okay, that a little sure. bit more? I can. Yeah. So um, I like to imagine um, like a nut or uh, a seed because wheat is a seed. So um, most seeds have a few different parts to them. Like if you like, let's think of a uh, sunflower seed. So a sunflower seed, we eat the inside, the like sort of, uh, well, the seed part, but then you've got the shell to crack it open. Now, when you crack it open, there's sort of this pith in there. It's not just a sunflower seed thing in there. It's There's all, also this pith. So what that is, is um, if you were to imagine that as a wheat berry, there's bran, which is like a shell, but it's softer than the sunflower seed shell. There's pith, which is a starch. So it's called the endosperm in wheat, and it's a starch. And then there's the germ which is sort of the oily part that's got a lot of nutrition and so what a seed is is sort of a locked pantry of nutrition for a new plant to grow mm. so it's locked nutritionally bound um, there's something called phytic acid which binds a lot of the nutrition that's in grains and it protects it from predators from things that want to eat it, including us. So um, I've heard it said that you can live off of bread, but you can't live off of grain. Mm. Um, you need to ferment that so that you can actually absorb the nutrition. So anyway, um, so about the milling process, the three different parts, there's the bran, there's the starch, and there is the germ. Wheat germ oil is um, a medicine. It's really good for us. 
um, but it's it doesn't last that long. Um, it can go rancid. It can spoil. Um, some of the things that cause it to go rancid are oxidation, which is like being exposed to lots of airflow, mm-hmm. which um, most roller mills have pneumatic air that pushes them from up to down to left to right to put them through the different runs of the mills. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that causes that. And then also temperature, if you heat it up too warm. Um, stone milling has been referred to as a cold milling. Um, I know there's a mill near Asheville area called Carolina Ground, and um, they're um, someone that I really look up to as far as how they make their flour. And um, yeah, they, they stress the fact that stone milling is cold milling. Um, they really try to be careful how warm their flour gets in the process of making it. So, um, so the way a roller mill works is um, the way the flour that you go to, if you go to the grocery store today and find one of the big mills, that's roller milled flour for sure. Unless it's specifically marketed as stone milled, it's roller milled. And most of those would just be local companies. I don't know of a nationally producing um, company that sells a lot of stone milled flour. Some of them have a small stone milled line, but so roller milled flour, the way it works is that there's two cylinders that are turning. You can imagine a, um, a ringer from a washing, uh, an old fashioned washing machine to dry your clothes, mm. um, like a, a, a ringer dryer or whatever. So they're spinning, they're steel, um, cylinders. And one of them is spinning a lot faster than the other. And the wheat falls through there and for some reason, the way that that works, they're both spinning fast. One is spinning much faster. That causes the wheat to sort of explode um, immediately. And those three ingredients that I mentioned go in three separate directions. You've got the starch going one way, the bran going another way, and the germ going another way. Mm. And the germ is getting warmed up, and it's becoming gummy in the process. And so um, the idea that uh, the roller mill industry has come up with is to get that stuff out of the way as soon as possible because now it's warm, now it's going rancid, and um, it's going to cause the starch, the flour, to spoil. So here's an interesting thing. Again, I mentioned that a seed is a locked storehouse of nutrition, so it's stable, it's shelf-stable. Um, unless it's in the presence of moisture, which will cause it to sprout. And the moisture, what it's doing is waking up the enzymes. And the enzymes are breaking down that phytic acid and breaking down. Yeah. Um, time to live again. Time to live. So <laughs> unlock the pantry of nutrition. It's available. So um, that's what sprouting does, right? So um, what's happening, Though that seed is shelf-stable. And... When you stone mill, for example, you're mixing all three parts of that flour into one hole. It's mm. becoming unified. It's becoming one thing, right? And for some reason, the shelf stability of stone milled flour is very high. Okay. If it's cold milled on a stone mill and all three of those ingredients are together in one bag of flour, they're actually quite shelf stable. They last a lot longer. Now, roller milled flour, the way they get the long shelf life is by removing the nutritious parts. So the minerals are in the bran and the oils, the nutritious germ oil is in the germ. They remove those two ingredients 
by bleaching, right? Okay, so they also do bleach the starch because the starches, the, the endosperm, the flower, it has this sort of yellow color, and that's really good. It's beta carotene. Oh. Yeah, so it's nice stuff, but they can bleach it um, so to make it, it more white. white. Yeah, and <laughs> for I, no reason. Yeah, <laughs> that's just history. I think it just sells better. To me. Sorry, though, I really well. You're great. No worries. So the way that the roller mill works is it has to remove those things. And in whole wheat flour, if you buy like a roller milled whole wheat flour, what they're doing is they're adding back in later at the end of the process at least 51% of the bran. And they're supposed to add back the germ. But from my understanding based on research, if you read Cooked by Michael Pollan, okay. um, the section called Air. So Cooked is separated into fire, water, air, fire. I can't remember. Sorry, four Earth. elements. Earth. <laughs> that one. That one. <laughs> <laughs> so the Air chapter, which I read like 10 times, is uh, talks about, he visits like milling industry, um, I guess alum or whatever, people that used to work in the milling industry, veterans, and they say, we never added the germ back because you can't. Because it's too gummy. It gums up the machines and it causes the shelf stability to go okay. way down. But that's that oil yeah. that holds all of that protein. It's fat, right? I mean, yeah, it's a fat. It's an oil, wheat germ oil. It's soothing to our skin. It's soothing to our stomach. Um, and I can't. I can't speak to what's actually nutritiously in it exactly, except for I know that it's important to keep it in. Well, yeah. I will tell you that I taste the difference mm. in the moisture in your brain. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's a lot that goes into that, but mm. we'll get back there. Cool. Yeah. I want to ask you about where you learned to bake okay. and where Great. your tradition comes from. Sweet. Great. Well, um, so I started baking in my house with bread books um, Somebody gave me a sourdough starter. A traveler that I um, that we hosted gave us a sourdough starter, an old one, and it just seemed so interesting. We got into it, and so that was like six or seven years ago that we first got a sourdough starter. And we're just, you know, I just baked. It was one of my weekly chores. Um, you know, we did different uh, household homesteading, um, urban farming related chores, and that was one of mine. Um, and I have family in Europe. My grandmother and my uncle were living in Greece. My uncle still lives there. My grandmother passed. But before she passed, she had just been diagnosed with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's maybe. But she was losing her memory and it was coming slowly. So I decided I, I would like to go see her and introduce her to my wife and to my son you know, her great-grandson she had never met. So we, we took a trip to Athens. And um, we had some friends, some radical Quakers that we were friends with out in Missouri, um, Ethan and Sarah Hughes, um, who were part of a community called the Possibility Alliance, who we were close with, and they had spoken to us volumes about their time in France. They had lived at a Catholic community um, with Gandhian roots um, 
and uh, a community that was well known for um, spiritual life um, alongside of agriculture, alongside of simple living, making their um, clothes out of um, wool spun from sheep that lived on the land. They're trying to make the distance between their um, mouth and their hands and the land less and less each year. It's called the Community of the Ark, founded by Lanza Del Vasto, and um, we decided to go visit them. And um, this would have been, yeah, like seven years ago. I think uh, it was before my uh, son Yanni was born, and uh, he's six now. So let's see, he was born in 2016. So this would have been 2015. Um, so we went out to visit the Ark, and when we went there, um, I just wanted to experience everything that they were doing a little bit, and they had um, a wood-fired bakery. And uh, the, the baker said he'd be waking up, you know, 4.30 the next morning, and I could join him if I wanted to and take a look at what he was doing. So I did, and I spent the whole day with him. His name's Robert, and uh, he knew Ethan and Sarah well. And we uh, baked together that day. And in the course of the day, he told me that, that he accepted apprentices and that he'd be willing to have somebody from... United States come and work with him for a year. He said a year was the minimum. And so I came back to Harrisonburg from that trip and tried to convince some of my friends to go. I thought that'd be great, you know. Um, wouldn't you want to do this? And we could, could bring him back to Harrisonburg. That'd be awesome. And nobody wanted to do it, and then it got stuck in my head. <laughs> I was like, well, maybe I'm telling other people to do it because I wanted to do it, but I couldn't do that. And we couldn't make that trip. That couldn't work. And... I kept bringing it up, and slowly it became reality. So we decided to move there. We lived there for a year. And I got to work with uh, Robert, who's a master uh, bread baker. He's been baking um, long... Uh, I think he's been baking since 1989. I was born in 1987, so <laughs> longer than I've been talking or something. And, um, yeah, it was amazing to work with somebody. He had a profound respect for tradition and there was tradition around the way I learned what I did um, there was a great respect that I had for him it just kind of came naturally just the whole thing felt like really really beautiful and really sort of sacred like serious it wasn't like light it was he was mm -hmm. giving me something special sharing something really good with me so um and it was also very intense I mean it was it was an old school apprenticeship um there were some funny traditions that um like for example he gave me an apron and a hat when I was able to complete my first bake alone which was a while because of the way it's set up you can't do your own first bake alone for it was months you know so I was without apron and a hat for that whole time. So I just had like a dirty shirt and flour on my pants or <laughs> The whatever. mark of an apprentice. Yeah. <laughs> it was like this humbling thing. It was like you have to earn the apron and the hat. And it, it was funny. It felt like a cap and gown when I got it <laughs> from graduation. It was super funny. And I learned uh, the arc of Lanza Del Vasto. And yeah, that community, I mean... I could, 
explain what that is. Like, that's a whole world unto itself. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. I'd love to hear a little bit of it. Great, yeah. Just briefly, basically, um, the founder, his name was Lanza del Vasto, and he was an Italian noble. I think he was born in 1901. And um, he left his nobility and decided to walk around barefoot or whatever, just from farm to farm, asking if he could do any work on the farm and staying in the barns and traveling as a poet, a writer, a thinker, a philosopher, multilingual. He spoke lots of European languages, even Latin. He was like a well-versed in Latin. He was an artisan, carver, um, make things out of metal. So anyway, he went along um, thinking and dreaming, um, as he traveled, and he was a Catholic guy, and um, he wanted to start a community. He saw a community as a great hope for the world, and um, sure enough, um, in the course of World War One, there was no ability to, to seek community. It was just help the sick, help the hurting, help people, and so he joined groups doing that. But um, after World War One, he said, there's no way this is peace. This is not peace. We're, this is going to happen again because mm. we haven't learned anything. We just ended a war. We didn't end war. Yeah. Violence is right beneath the surface. And he saw that linked to sin in the heart of humans. So um, he said, where can I go in this world to learn about the nonviolence of Jesus because all these Christians are killing each other and they're about to do it again. He could tell it was coming. He said, who can teach me about Jesus nonviolence? And he said, there's nobody except for Gandhi. Gandhi. <laughs> so he went out to India and he learned, uh, in his words, he learned about Jesus from a small Hindu man in India. And uh, he came back and uh, started sort of a Catholic expression of the Gandhian communities. Uh, and, yeah, we had a profound experience of that community. It wasn't just about learning bread. We, we experienced a lot there. Mm. That's amazing. It was fun. <laughs> really amazing. I have to have a follow-up conversation with Ethan and Sarah someday. Great. Yeah, they are. Ugh, you'll get a great uh, treasure. My friends that have influenced me the most from another Gandhian-influenced community that's all about weaving together the head, the hands, and the heart mm. with the land is Vine and Fig, great. where we met. Yeah. And... They had also, a lot of those friends had come through the Possibility Alliance with Ethan and Sarah as well, mm. which they were inspired originally by the community of the Ark, Alonzo de Vasto. Is that it? Yep, yep, yep. So how did, how is your connection to Vine and Fig woven in yeah. to the story? Great. Yeah, so like you said, we met at Vine and Fig, um, yeah, we worked there. It was a house of radical hospitality. 
to people who needed somewhere to stay, uh, people that struggled with homelessness, addiction, on top of a permaculture sort of research center, a place where you could have freedom to um, explore uh, different connections of plants, like can I grow this here, and what happens if I grow berries here and onions there. Um, really beautiful, um, serious, and intelligent agrarian people met there and gathered there. And um, So my wife and I, Rachel Sarah is her name, we um, ended up at Vine and Fig because we had started out as being um, anti-extraction, uh, direct action activists against mountaintop removal, coal mining specifically, but mm-hmm. a lot of different uh, resources um, that you can use to make energy, you can use to make electricity. Um, and if you actually go to sort of their um, source, uh, it's it's often very ugly and very grievous um, how we actually get the materials that are burned in the uh, power plants to make the power. So we decided that we wanted to live um, very simply. Um, and um, I remember we heard a woman speak. I, I don't know if it was Judy Bonds, but I, I have a memory in my head of being Judy Bonds. And she said, who was a, who was a leader from West Virginia, um, leader against the, in the fight against mountaintop removal, coal mining. And she said at some point, every time you turn on the lights, think of me. And, and again, I'm on recording now, so if it wasn't Judy Bonds and someone knows who that actually was who said that, let me know, because my memory is it was Judy. But every time you turn on your lights, remember me. And um, mm. Rachel Sarah just came back with that echoing in her head. Like she couldn't get that out of her head. Um, and we're Christians. We were reading the scriptures. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, it talks about um, what kind of fasting is it that God desires? Does he want us to fast from food and, and humble ourselves and feel good about ourselves, feel kind of holy, feel kind of maybe even superior or something? No, that's not the kind of fast he desires, more importantly, it's to fast from injustice, to loosen the bonds of oppression, to destroy the yoke um, of oppression. And um, that's the kind of fast, fast from injustice, if you're going to fast. And um, her and I, in our discussions, we realized, wow, if we fast from injustice, if we fast from dependence upon a grid of electricity, that's if you follow it to the end, you will cry. If you follow it to the end, your heart will be hurt. Um, if your heart is tender, you will feel that. Um, and so we, tr- we tried to live in that way. And there was a house for sale right next to this beautiful community, Vine and Fig, and we bought the house very inexpensively. We fixed it up, and we lived in a little off-grid urban homestead. Um, we ended up working with Vine and Fig for a couple years. We were the garden managers there. We were um, part of the... Partners, which was like the, um, I guess the sort of board of directors or whatever that they have. And while we were there, we just, it was just such a fertile place for dreaming and discussion. And we realized we really wanted to be part of a community that we could dig together um, spiritually. And again, we wanted to, we're very linked to uh, the study of the scriptures. And so we wanted to find 
a group that was interested in living in an agrarian way and interested in living in a spiritual communion as Christians with a study of scriptures and other things. And so we sought that out, and uh, our good friend Tom Benevento was really supportive of us. He t- kind of pointed us to some different directions that we could find that sort of thing. But yeah, I, um, I'm thankful for the beauty that we experienced at Vine and Fig and uh, tell people about it all the time because it's, it's where we come from. It's our stomping grounds. Mm-hmm. It's kind of where this whole thing was birthed. Yeah. It's very much a womb or a cocoon yeah. for so many people. Well, if there's one thing that you want people to think of mm. when they eat your bread, what would that be? Great question. You know, I think for people to trust the intentions behind the making of it, that our desire is to make something that's beautiful, delicious, and good for you, healthy, nutritious, um, In, in French, they say bon appetit in a meal. Like, may you be happy to eat this food. May you have uh, plenty of appetite, desire in you to, to eat this food. And that, I think that that comes from trust. If you don't trust what the kitchen's doing back there, if you go to a restaurant, then you kind of can't have a bon appetit. You cannot feel hungry if you don't trust what's going on. And... Um, yeah, my hope is that when people think of Millsong bread, that they can think of something that's made with integrity and made with honesty and made with knowledge of the process. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you, Amelia. This has been such an honor and a pleasure. It really has. Thank you, Nico. Keep it up. Now, I know your next move is to figure out how can I get this bread into my life? Well, there are many ways, but as one of their longest standing weekly patrons, let me tell you about my favorite. Subscribe to their community supported bakery, the number one way you can support a small artisan bakery trying to make it in a world of sliced bread. When you sign up, You let them know which bread you'd like, and they have it ready for you every week for pickup at the bakery on Lincolnshire Road or at the farmer's market. Some lucky neighborhoods even have drop-off hubs, so if you are an organizer, get your neighbors together and make yours one of them. Call them up to start your CSB subscription at 434-1001. Or you can always pick up a loaf at the Harrisonburg Farmer's Market, where you'll find Nico and his son Moises every Saturday from 8 to 1. Stay tuned for more stories weaving together the head, the hands, and the heart, as Gandhi said, for the rest of Season 1 of the Wild Honey Collective through the end of February. While we won't have new episodes coming out during our break, we will be going deeper into the stories shared over this rich and wonderful season. 
so please follow along at wildhoney.collective on Instagram or at wildhoneycollective.org. For all you wild honeys out there, keep creating.